This is uh, Richard Tapia again with uh, Voice of Jones County Podcast Radio. I'm here with uh, Steve Hankin. Hankin, yeah. Uh, lives in Monticello. Steve, could you give me a little bit of uh, title and what, what do you do? I'm retired now. At uh, one point I was uh, a sheet metal mechanic. I ran full sheet table lasers, uh, NC, DNC, programmable punch presses, um, brakes, anything that had to do with sheet metal, I did. And after I got tired of starving to death trying to find a job, I uh, decided I would go have some fun and volunteered to do excavations on archaeological excavations down in Iowa City and someone told me that I could get paid to do that and I says where do I sign up so for about 10 years before I actually did retire uh, I dug holes for a living and I dug holes in five states and uh, uh, made a living out of it and and quite, quite enjoyed it. Well let's go back a little bit further where were you born? I was born here in Monticello at the hospital and raised on a little dirt farm out by Pitched Rocks. And we had dairy, uh, we had a little bit of everything. We raised hogs, we raised cattle, uh, milk cows, of course, and did what we needed to do. I've looked back at some of the records and uh, for a family of five we lived on $7,000 and that was a, a fairly good income at the time. Uh, which was nothing, but we didn't know any different because we went to country school and and everybody around us lived the same way, and so we never knew that there was anything different about our lives. We figured we were just much just the same as everybody else was in the world. What, what year was that? Um, I graduated from high school in 1968 from Monticello, so it was before 1968, and the school, um, I think it was in 19, the country school there closed in 1961. Um, and then I got transferred to another country school and, and to Wayne number five. And then I got brought into town and they didn't have any room in the schools. So they put us in the basement of the Masonic Temple that doesn't exist anymore. They finally tore it down, uh, which was right underneath the lunchroom and right underneath the grease traps, which was a, 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 a great place to, to have classes whenever they cleaned the grease traps because it just stunk like crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, what was life like back in those days, uh, uh, the 50s and 60s when you were growing up? Well, here everybody was connected. There's a lot of family here, and they've been here for a long time. I'm a, like I told you, I was a full, I was, I'm a full-blooded German, five generations in America, because all my relatives are Germans, and they're all from here, and they're all from around here, and. If you did anything wrong, uh, you had to almost know your genealogy because you had to protect yourself from those people that would tell on you. And if you didn't know who they were that would tell on you, that would know your parents, you were in trouble. So usually what happened, if you were going to do anything wrong, you went to Cascade or someplace where there was none of your relatives. <laughs> and uh, But every everybody here knew everybody else. That's just the way it was. Uh, you went to school with your cousins. Oftentimes, you didn't even know who your cousins were. I ran into people that had dates with their cousins. They didn't know it at, for prom. And uh, their father would tell them, you know, so-and-so is your cousin. 
and it sort of like just knocked the window some people because they didn't realize it. Wow. And it, it continues to this day. Well, my wife and I have made several trips back to Germany. And the people there are surprised because when we go around the cemeteries, we see all the same names in the cemeteries. And we walk around the streets and, and tell them who we are. And this happened just recently when I was in Germany. We went into an antique shop and we told the man that owned this antique shop that we were from the United States and that we came back to visit distant relatives. And he said, uh, well, he says, my mother was a, was a Hanson and she had three brothers that went to America. And I looked at him and I said, is one of your uncles Gerhard? He says, well, yeah. I says, he was my next door neighbor. And I says, that's how close it is. Then he introduced us to his, his girlfriend um, who has distant relatives that were uh, Karens that were the ministers at Wayne Zion Lutheran Church who has rel relatives that are related to the Friezes and a no number of people around here. And there are still some of those people here up around Strawberry Point. Uh, wow. we, we invited people to come here next summer and we're going to have 25 to 30 Germans come to visit us in Monticello and I'm hoping I can get some interest going in it so we can really make this something special for these people so we become part of the tour and not a detour on the tour yeah, yeah. what's uh, what's the purpose of them coming I think mostly it's the same thing I get out of going there I have a great time so they have a curiosity about... And they have the same curiosity we have. Wow. And the connections between the two sides, although we've been, it's been strained through two, two world wars and a whole lot of other things that happened, um, there's still that... They are my family, you know, and kind of curious about them. And, and, you know, maybe once their curiosity is satisfied, there won't, won't be any more interest in it. But I don't think so. I think it'll probably continue. Well, what happens when they come here and they looking for somewhat German food and they get pizza, hamburgers, hot dogs, tacos. This stuff is all world stuff. There is no such thing as German food anymore. Really? Yeah. I mean, in America, a tenderloin is the same thing as schnitzel. as a schnitzel, except it's not veal anymore. Yeah. And that's that's largely what a, what a tenderloin is, is a schnitzel made in America. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things that you know, we're a melting pot of all kinds of different cultures. We have all kinds of things here that we think are German, and Germans don't even think they're German anymore because they're so, you know, that's so international. Like pizza coming from Italy or spaghetti coming from Italy. Actually, spaghetti came from China with Marco Polo. We don't recognize the fact, but that's what it, where it came from. So food is not a big deal. That's not a big deal. The pasta came from China and the tomatoes came to United from Americas. Yeah, by way of South America. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's as an ornamental, because they wouldn't even eat it because it was considered poisonous. Yeah, because it's a member of the nightshade family. Yeah, yeah. So you go through high school. What happened after high school? High school was short, sweet, and I was out of here. I left home at 17 and lived on my own. I held down two jobs, and when I graduated from high school. At the time, if you didn't have 
uh, a college deferment, you had two choices and only one of those was realistic because everybody would say to you, if you don't have your military obligation out of the way, we can't hire you. Really? And consequently, that left you one possible thing to do if you couldn't find a job. And in order to ensure the fact that maybe you could keep yourself out of the bush, you enlisted, which I did. Weren't there a lot of jobs in the Monticello? This place used to be called the Pittsburgh of the Prairie. Right? Yeah. Well, there were jobs here. And I even had a job in a plant here while I was in high school. And I had it after I was in high school. But I'd already signed up for the military. And the fact of the matter was is that that was always hanging over your head. You didn't know when you were going to get called. And when I graduated in 1968 after the Tet Offensive, we didn't know where we were going from there. So when I signed up, I signed up. Initially, I wanted to be a pilot. And I got talked out of that. But the guy says, well, what about a mechanic? How about an engine mechanic or something? He says, we got to get you in on a, a delayed enlistment program. We can set you up with this. And it's a critical MOS. The reason for being in a critical MOS was pretty well obvious. But it's a critical MOS so we can get you PFC, Spec 4. You can be Spec 4 right out of school. Said, Sounds great. I'll make some money. So I signed up to be a turbine engine mechanic and never saw a running turbine engine, mechan uh, engine in the entire time I was in school. Um, got to Vietnam and they said, well, we got enough engine mechanics. You're now a hydraulic specialist. So for the first year I was in Vietnam, I was a hydraulic specialist. Did all the flight controls and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but that was that was the way it went you know you were gonna one way or another they were gonna get you um, and then after I got there I was there about six months and they started the lottery so and I my, my number was way high I would have never gotten called well wow. once you're once you're committed uh, you know you're in for the duration so yeah. oh, that, I uh, when I, I joined the Navy and I wanted to be in the CBs. They said, no, we're not taking anybody in the CBs anymore. In fact, they're they're, they're disbanding many of the units. Uh, so I was stationed in San Diego waiting for a school. Well, lo and behold, they said, we need uh, tons of volunteers. So what are you going to be? It says, the CBs. <laughs> so I finally got to go to the CBs. I said, I don't know how uh, this stuff happens. but Yeah. So in, in Vietnam, where were you stationed? Uh, initially, I was stationed at Chulai at a place called Keha. Uh, it was 75 feet above sea level and it had been, been built by the Marines. As a matter of fact, I ran into a Marine from here um, who had built the place that I was at. And he would ask me about all these different buildings and from what he called them, and I have to figure out what he was talking about to figure out what he was. But the building that he was talking about as to where it happened to it or whether whether it was still standing. And uh, anyway, I started off there and I worked my way around the shop learning different things as I obviously it didn't matter that I was not an engine mechanic, so I figured maybe it might be a good idea to learn a few other things. So I learned sheet metal and I learned uh, a little bit about everything that we did. 
I ended up being a parts man for a while. Um, we had illegal storage parts. We had probably over three. I probably had over in control of over three hundred thousand dollars worth of illegal parts. What? What were the illegal? Uh, at the time, a lot of the the engine parts, especially, were very expensive, and the way they were trying to cover for the expenses was to do a one-for-one -one exchange. So if you had a part that was bad, you'd have to put it back into the system, send it back to the states, and from the states they would send you one back. Well, consequently, that meant a helicopter sat on the ground for two weeks or longer waiting for parts. So rather than put up with that kind of stuff, as is often the case when you deal with bureaucracies, you find ways around it. And our way around it was we were also in charge of blowing up ships that had gone down in the jungle. And we would make the determination of whether they were um, salvageable or not. And after we made that determination, we'd fire a couple of rockets on that ship and blow them to kingdom come. Except we took out an engine crew and pulled the hot end off the engine, brought it in, would steal the turbine wheels off of it, make up dummy paperwork, and send the turbine wheels back to the United States where they would say, well, okay, here's another turbine wheel. And we had a Connex full of turbine wheels and other parts that were one-for-one -one exchange items or red ball, as they called them, red ball express items. And whenever the inspector general came around, we would call for a Chinook helicopter to come pick up our Connex of parts and park it someplace else. And when the IG inspection was over, call them up and have them bring it back and everything went along just smoothly what what was the part that was the most critical on, a, on an engine like that what what part broke them often what part lasted the longest well you're dealing with heat and these engines burn fuel and if you have a something wrong they're they're insulated with air and if if something a bullet comes through something you, know, you start adding air in places where it shouldn't be. If you run out of fuel someplace, these things will burn any kind of fuel. Uh, but there's a life, life problem with the engine. It doesn't last for very long. And you have to, once you use a, a wrong kind of fuel, you have to pull the hot end off and exchange it and all that sort of thing. There's all kinds of things that come into play, right down to RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, being fired at transmissions where the engine gobbles up all of that extra iron and runs it through there like a, a meat through meat grinder, except it grinds up the meat grinder. And so there's all that, all those kinds of things that can go wrong. And so there's no real one part. There was some odd things about some other parts that we had that were uh, only because we didn't have permission to work on them. Why, why was that? Um, because when Bell Helicopter created the helicopter, they didn't get all the patents to all the parts to it. <laughs> so well, one of the things that would happen, and this was, again, was another red ball item. There were two little things that were on the mast and they worked as shock absorbers on, on the blades. So you couldn't over control your, your helicopter and put too much pitch in the blade and then you know, snap off a blade. These things would just gradually let the changes happen. So it was sort of like a shock absorber. 
and they had a little window in them. And if you could look in there and see the interior of it, it was fine. If it got cloudy, you had to take it off, put it in a box, send it back to the States to the company who would take it apart, wipe out the glass, put it back together and send it back to you. That's what we found out because we figured if we were going to send it back anyway, we might as well take it apart and see how it worked. And the first time we took one apart, springs went sailing across the room. So, ah, guess we have to hold it tight and keep the springs in there when we slide it off. And so we would slide it open a little bit and take a dust-free cloth and wipe out the inside, pour out all the oil that was in there, and put it back together, open the top, put fresh hydraulic oil in it, fill it up to where it was supposed to be, tried it out on the flight line, told them what we were doing, seemed to work, did a test flight on it, seemed to work. We did it that way for the rest of the, my time in, in the hydraulic shop. Wow. And it saved a lot of turnaround time and we kept people flying. That probably saved a lot of lives and a lot of costs. Well, at the time that I was there, our first priority was always medevacs. If medevacs came in, medevacs went out just about as quickly as they came in because we would, if we had to rob parts of uh, gunships to, to keep a medevac flying, that's what we did. Well, so how much time did you spend in Vietnam? Two years. Two years. When did you get out? 1971. Exactly what month, I couldn't tell you. It was warm, that's all I can tell you. I was home for 13 days, left for Europe and went hitchhiking, didn't come back for 10 more months. Wow. That's what I wanted to. I got out in 71, too, from now. Okay, you finish your military service. You're back in Monticello. What did you start doing then? Uh, after the 10 months that I was in Europe? Yeah, well, yeah what did you do in Europe? Uh, did you grow your hair long like all the other Vietnam vets that I met over there? Sure, sure. Meet a lot of uh, Canadian women? Uh, Canadian, we met every kind of women. You know, we did all kinds of things there. We we traveled all over the place. I was with a friend of mine. Uh, we had been together in Vietnam, and then he decided to extend to go fly, and he went to fly for another company that wasn't in our area, and we kept in touch. Decided to go to Europe together. Uh, we had thought about going up to uh, Ely, Minnesota, and just hang out for a couple, three months up there after we got back. And then we found out that the flights were cheap enough that if we were going to waste our money and waste our time, we might as well do it in Europe. So we got passports. And uh, when he got back, actually what happened to him is his plane had a failure and his pilot was killed and his, his uh, door gunner was killed. And he went sailing across the jungle floor uh, and ran into a nipa palm with his helmet, split his helmet completely open, but he didn't hurt himself. He uh, broke an ankle. Wow. So he couldn't get out of the army fast enough uh, because they sent him home to a hospital. And then he had to spend his time in the hospital until he actually finished his time in, in the service. And I got home ahead of him. He should have gotten out ahead of me by about two months. And as it was, he ended up uh, on the early out. He didn't get much of the early out because he was already home in the hospital in Kansas. So we got together and 
we flew to New York City and they had to clear up some passport problems that I had because I had a passport previous that they had put some waivers on that I couldn't get use it anymore and I had to get that cleared. Then we flew from there to Amsterdam and started off and we hitchhiked to Copenhagen and we went all over the place and I ended up as far south as Marrakesh and Morocco and as far north as Copenhagen and everything in between. Wow. Now that kind of reminds me, I got to spend a little time in Europe after Vietnam too and my favorite place was uh, Spain, Morocco and Greece. And I didn't get to Greece. I didn't go there. Um, not because I didn't want to, it just didn't happen, that's all. Yeah. I, I did. I figured uh, by the time I got to Marrakesh, I had $50 left and I spent a month Morocco on $50. Oh, wow. And I got as far as Italy when I ran out of money. I borrowed $20 from a Canadian and left Italy, went over the Brenner Pass in early April and got to Garmisch Partenkirchen, and caught another ride and the guy that picked me up said, uh, well, where are you going? I says, I'm going back home. And he says, uh, why? And I says, because I've run out of money. And he says, well, he says, I tell you what, I'll buy your beer and, and your food if uh, you'll come with me and help me paint my apartment. I says, you're on. So I painted his apartment and spent fashing in, in uh, Munich. Wow. And then I went home. But you still had a ticket to get home. Yeah, I still had a ticket to get home. But my ticket to get home got me to as far as New York City. Oh, wow. I had to hitchhike from New York City back to Iowa. That was back when it was safe to hitchhike. Uh, nobody here thought that. <laughs> so I get, the, with the $20 that I had, that I went over the Brenner Pass, spent an extra week in Munich, got to Frankfurt, flew to New York City, I went to the information desk and asked, What's the cheapest, the quickest, and the fastest way out of New York City? And so they gave me all of these explicit directions of what I was supposed to do. And I did pretty good, all things considered, because that's an eight-hour flight, and you're pretty well dragging it by the time you get off that plane. And the only thing is, is I got on a bus, and I went through the Lincoln Tunnel, and I should have gotten off there, but I didn't. I just didn't. It didn't occur to me that I needed to get off there. I figured, well, it's a bus. You know, I just go with it. If I don't get where I need to go, I can come back with it. There was a bus strike. It wouldn't bring me back. So here I am in the middle of New Jersey and nowhere's close to where I need to go. I went and looked in my wallet. I had two addresses, one for a guy in Florida and one for a guy in New Jersey. And I walked up to a local Sinclair station and asked the guy, I said, you know where this is at? He says, uh, how are you getting around? I says, my feet. And he says, well, are you in a hurry? I says, no. He says, well, he says, if you can wait a half an hour, he says, I drive right by there. I'll give you a ride and drop you off. Wow. So he dropped me off and I went to the door and knocked on the door and the people were looking out the door out of the crack and they were like who the heck is this guy and I explained that I knew this guy in Vietnam and this was his home address and I was coming back from Europe and I thought I'd stop and see him and just a minute 
there was a bunch of talking going on. Like, well, what's this all about? And he says, they opened the door a little crack, and he says, he doesn't live here anymore. This is where his wife lives. This is her, his wife's parents' place. I said, oh, I said, well, I just thought maybe I could stop and see him. And she they did, they must have taken a look at me and, and took pity on me. But he says, would you like a cup of coffee? And they let me in the door. That was their first mistake. Then they said, you want to talk to him on the phone? And they called him up because he lived in Patterson, New Jersey, which was a long ways from there. And he says, I can't believe you're here. He says, I'll come kick you up. So he came and picked me up. And I went to his house and overnighted there. And it was on a Sunday night. We had dinner on Sunday night. And I don't know what had happened, but his wife must have got to him. And she said, like, when's this guy going to take off? So he asked me, he says, when are you leaving? I said, well, I can leave any time. And he says, well, he says, I'll give you a ride out to the interstate. This is at 7 o'clock at night. And uh, so I kind of put my foot in my mouth and said, okay, grab my stuff. And 7 o'clock at night, I'm on the interstate. Have no idea where I'm at. Have no maps. Didn't want to let, didn't want to let you stay there another night. No, didn't want me to stay another night. I stayed one night. Oh, another night. So anyway, I got on the road in the middle of the night, out in the middle of, I don't know where I am, hitchhiking underneath some lights, and a guy came along in a Volkswagen bus, and he pulls over. It's like 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm just standing out there hitchhiking. He says, where are you going? I says, well, I'm trying to get to Iowa. I said, Iowa? He says, you're going the wrong direction. He says, good thing I came along. I'll, I can get you back on the road. Get in. So we got in. And this is April, you know, and it's cold out there. And he says, uh, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. And he says, well, this is where I turn off to go south to, to where I'm going to community college. He says, uh, where are you staying tonight? I said, I'll probably pull out my sleeping bag and sleep alongside the road someplace. He says, it's cold out there. You can't sleep out there. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, if you're not in a hurry, he says, I got classes in the morning. But he says, you can stay at my place, and I'll bring you back up to the interstate after I get out of classes. It won't be until the afternoon. I said, fine. So I went and stayed at his apartment and his roommate asked me if I wanted breakfast. So I had bacon and eggs while I was sitting on his couch looking at a, pla a, a pile of Playboys that I hadn't seen in many a year. <laughs> and uh, I thought, I was living in a lap of luxury. These people really didn't know what it's like to live on the road. So he came back, gave me a ride out and uh, I got a couple of short rides and was in Pennsylvania at a, at a truck stop. And some guys had pointed me out to, you know, the truck entrance and exits over there. Maybe that's where you should go if you want to go that far. So I was over there. I had stopped and got spaghetti. They had cheap, a cheap meal, so I had spaghetti. And I came back out and was hitchhiking at the exit for the trucks. And this old beater 54 Chevrolet came banging in. And I noticed it because he just didn't see anything that old, usually on the interstate. <laughs> and they had dinner and came back out. And I'm still standing there. And they, somebody's hollering at me. And I don't see any trucker around here. No, over here. And it was the same people. And uh, he said, uh, where are you going? I said, I'm trying to get to Iowa. 
He says, well, if you can figure out how to get it in, he says, we're going to St. Paul, Minnesota. He says, we can take you a little ways. I says, that sounds good to me. I'll find a way to get it in. So I rode with them until Indiana. And he says, well, we're going to stop for the night. I said, you mind if I sleep in your car? Oh, no, help yourself. So I slept in his car. And the next morning I got up. And I got as far as uh, Illinois. And they said, well, we're going north. And you're going still further west. So they let me out. They caught a couple of short rides. And uh, I was in a town. It was starting to rain. And somebody hollered at me. I was standing at a stoplight and swing hollered at me. I couldn't find out where he was at. He says, over here, over here. And he was at a house. And he had an old Dodge uh, car. And he says, where are you going? I says, I'm trying to get to Iowa. He says, well, I can give you a ride part of the way. He says, I, he says, I got classes today. He says, but he says, I'll help you out. So I got in the car and he, he goes to start the car. And just Dodges at the time had that wind to their starter, you know, and this guy was just burning up his battery, and I says, hey man, I says, don't worry about it, I says, if you can't get it started, I says, that's fine, I says, I can I can still make it, he says, no, no, hang on, hang on, I said, no, 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 man, I says, don't burn up your points in your, in your battery over this, he says, ah, don't worry about it, he says, I robbed it out of my old man's tractor yesterday, he says, it's got a lot of life in it yet. And that's when I knew I was getting close to home. And as it was, he gave me a ride. And he was only going to go so far. And then we get to talking about it. He says, well, for a couple of quarts of oil and two gallons of gas, I think I can go to Dubuque. So I ended up in Dubuque because I had a friend of mine that lived there. And I called him up on the phone and the phone was busy. So I thought, well, I can surprise him. And I knew where his address was. And we went there, and they had left. Apparently, he'd just been on the phone for a little bit, and they were leaving, and they left. And he was living, he, he had been married for a short time, and he was living in an apartment with a bunch of little old ladies. And they, they must have taken one look at me and thought, who in the God's name is this guy? Because I had hair down to my shoulders, you know, and I'm in an old army jacket and I'm carrying a backpack under my arm because the frame broke almost I don't know how long before that and they're just looking at me like oh this is one of those people and I, I never heard anything about it until much later when I ran into Jim my friend that was living there with his wife Oh, he says, yes. He says, we do know that you were there. He says, we got all these, all the information we needed on who had been there from the two ladies that live, the two widow ladies that live in the house. But the guy finally decided, like, oh, God, he says, I'm not going to go to class today. He says, I'll give you a ride to your house. So he gave me a ride to my house. And I backed him up to uh, the fuel tank at my dad's, filled him up, went in the machine shed, grabbed two quarts of oil, he was happy and on his way, and I still had $7 of the $20 I started with. A journey? From from Italy. Yeah, from Italy. Wow. Uh, that sounds like one of those Bilbo Baggins stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you've done all the stuff, working in shops and stuff, and now you tell me you're bringing over German students to Monticello. No, they're going to be older people. They're, they're going to be, be older people. More than likely, they'll be 
in their 60s, 50s and 60s and 70s. Wow. Because no. they're the kind of have, have the money that can go, so they're, that's, and have the time. You've also done archaeological work? Oh, yeah. What, what kind of sites are specific? Well, in this area, um, I worked on the Bones Prairie site, which is between here and Cascade along uh, 151, where they double, double laned it up to uh, Dubuque. And uh, there were seven sites there. And I worked on just about all of them at one point or another. And after it was the excavations were done, I was in charge of the lab um, and had a pile of stuff. We had dirt samples from every 10 centimeters of every excavation that we did. That's every four inches there would be a sack of dirt. Now, was this a state agency or a private yes. company? This was for the state. This was for the state archaeologist's what, what were they looking for? Uh, these places were designated as important because Bones Prairie as a community was one of the first communities that was not associated with the river. It was, uh, it was associated with a territorial road and it was away from the river, which was made it completely different. And so all the associated things that went along with it were, became important as well as to why certain things, businesses would get started in a place that was not near a river. Rivers considered the, the highways of the times and roads were kind of like iffy at best. And yeah. this, was, this was started when the road was still pretty iffy at the time. So that, you know, they make a determination, somebody in government makes a determination of what's important. And they decided it was important. So we excavated the sites and uh, we had a creamery, we had a church, we had a school, we had a, an early, real early farm. Uh, we had, a, there was a, a hotel that we ended up not excavating because there was some problems with it. Um, there were some other places that we didn't excavate or that we didn't find a whole lot, even though that they seemed to be important. Uh, we had another creamery. Uh, the, the one that I worked on most was a cheese factory that turned into a creamery and it closed about 1907, between 1905, 1907. Uh, unfortunately, not everything is written down. And even though people seem to think that this is modern times and we write everything down so we know everything about everything that's hardly the case and consequently archaeology is going to become more and more meaningless because we don't just take a building down and leave anything left behind we dig it out with a shovel and and take everything with it so there's nothing left and so there won't be any any way to know what what happened there so if you don't write it down it's going to be gone but so what made you decide that you like this kind of work? It took until my 50s to find my first arrowhead. Really? And it happened quite quite by accident. I was on, uh, fishing down on the Wapsie, on Wapspinnikin River, on a rock bar. And I'd set a line for some catfish and was waiting for the catfish to bite. Usually when I go out there, I'd pick up all the beer cans and stuff to kind of clean up around wherever I go. And I had a bucket with me that I put my bait in and my beer cans in. So I changed my bait 
and I'd thrown out all my beer cans. So I was on my hands and knees throwing all the beer cans back in. Lo and behold, I just thought about this, and there was an arrowhead laying there. Wow. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I never found one before, which was even, you know, it wasn't the best arrowhead, but it was an arrowhead. Two weeks later, I found my second arrowhead the same way. Uh, fishing about where the uh, bridge, uh, the Hale Bridge is in Wapspinnikin Park at the time, there was a little island out there where Fawn Creek runs in. And the water was down so you could walk across if you watch where you're going on that island and there was a bunch of rocks on the other side of it which is a pretty good place for a bath. <clears throat> and so I'm walking on this kind of wet area and sand and gravel and stuff. I stepped down and something rolled up beside my foot. And I reached down to pick it up and it turned out to be a paleo point. But 9,000 years old. Well, that was the second one I found. And the third one I found was the same same way. I went fishing and uh, I heard about this lo lo location and I asked my cousin about it and he said, well, let's go down there. So we went down there and this big pile of sand there and I this is not, not normal. There's something happened here. So I walked across it and I found another arrowhead that turned out to be a village site and not only did it turn out to be a village site they turned out that um, in my investigations of the area I found two fish weirs within a mile of each other on the Mobs Pinnacle River which is an uncommon thing. So what what native group uh, nation was in this area? Well the nations are kind of the, the white guys a version of who's who. Uh, probably the, the earliest peoples that were here were the Iowa. And the people that came after them were people that were pushed out of Illinois, or in the case of the folks down in Tama, those folks came all the way from Quebec and to Michigan and got pushed out of there. And it, well, this is a Algonquin-speaking group, or um, the Iowa are Siouan. Siouan, okay. But uh, the folks from Tama are Algonquin. They, they, the Fox. Are Algonquin and their cousins, and the Sac are cousins, and they're all Algonquins. But uh, the people that were here were the Iowa, and they are a group that's associated with the Missouri as well as the Sioux. Wow. Um, the, the groups are kind of mix and match. There's also the Winnebagos, or as they call them, the Ho Chunk now. The Ho Chunk, yeah. They're further up north. Yeah. Well, they were in this area, too. And there was there were other eastern tribes that kind of would come in and go out, come in and go out into into Iowa. But for the most part, the earlier people were going to be probably the Iowa. Hmm. It'd be great if we had a uh, sort of living village of what they lived like back then. Um, yeah. <laughs> that would be a, a real attraction. At one point, uh, a friend of mine was in charge of the Indian village at Living History Farms. And he now lives in Anamosa. His name's Toby Morrow. He's an excellent flint napper. And uh, when he was married, he and his wife ran the, the village or the, the, the part of that 
Living History Farms that was the Indian part of the farming. Where, where was his Living History Farm at? Doing. And oh, in Des Moines? Yeah. There's none around here? Uh, nothing that I know of, no. Well, that'd be another great thing to, to have around here. Well, yeah, you know, it just takes a lot of work to get those things It does, it does. It, it, it seems to take a while to get people interested in something that I think that a lot of people would be interested in. There are places that I've run across that, oh my God, if somebody would just do something with it, it would take off. There's a site in Missouri that is absolutely phenomenal. Um, the state of Missouri owns a portion of it because a friend of mine found this location and made them, literally made them, buy it. Wow. Because there was a, a piece of farm ground there. Uh, it's along the Des Moines River. And it turns out that it was probably, and I I say probably only to give other people credit for things that they, are not, they don't know anything about, uh, it was probably the village that uh, Marquette and Jolliet visited when they went on the west side of the river. Wow. Um. I'm limited to 45 minutes. We have about four left, and I want to use them to talk about your current project of bringing people over from Europe. And uh... Well, at the moment, it's still a little in the air. Um, we're juggling with people that are going to run this tour out of Germany, and it's a year away. We're assuming it will be sometime in late July, early August. We're going to miss the fair. I didn't want to bring people here. Uh, trying to find a place to overnight in Monticello with a fair, fair on. It just would not work. Yeah. So the object here is to find them here and hopefully in the, get here like in an afternoon, overnight here, and then maybe leave around noon the next day. That would be ideal as far as I'm concerned. Then we have a little time with them in the evening and a little time with them during the day. We can spend some time like motorcycle museum in Anamosa or a tour of the stone quarries at, at uh, stone, stone city or any number of things that we can come up with. But I figured if we could have something in the evening, uh, a little music, a little fun, these people much as they, they still like to dance. Yeah, and if yeah. a friend of mine comes, he's going to bring a squeeze box. Really? Yeah. He calls it a harmonica, and I'm going like, no, no, that's this way. No, no, that's this way. But, uh, yeah, we'll see what we can do. Are they coming in a bus, or are they riding motorcycles? Uh, no, they're going to be on a bus. They're going to first come from Chicago. They're going to go to St. Louis. Then they're going to come up to Hannibal. Then I'm not quite sure, but they're going to be in, like, Wellsburg and in Grundy County, and then they're going to go into Illinois, and they're going to stop here, and, and then eventually get back to Chicago and then fly back to to Germany. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, if I can just contain my excitement. Yeah. <laughs> and find enough other people that got a little more excitement than I got. Well, Steve, this has been a blast. I want to do it again because you got a great story. You got a lot of great details about your travels. And I, I think people don't realize that that's how things were done back in the 60s and early 70s. You hitchhiked, and it was somewhat safe. It's not anymore. There's nobody hitchhiking in Germany either anymore. I, really? I, I was really amazed. You don't see anybody on the road. I wonder why. Is it Because we're afraid of ourselves. Yeah, we've, uh, I don't know, we're regressing as humans, I, I yes. have to feel. But I'm sorry I have to stop it here, but I want to come back again if you allow me to sure. continue the interview. 
Again, this is Richard Tapia. Uh, Listen to this on uh, Voice of Jones County Podcast Radio.